Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Marketing Live for Thursday, August 30th, 2018. Hope it's been a terrific start of the fall semester for all of you. I'm Rob Zinkin. I serve as Associate Vice President for Marketing at Indiana University. And today on Marketing Live, our topic, Addressing Higher Ed's Public Perception Issues. Marketing Live is part of the Higher Ed Live Network. Our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. Be a part of our live broadcast by jumping in on the discussion. Share your thoughts, ask questions, just tweet us using the hashtag Higher Ed Live. All of our episodes are free and easy to access in the video archives at higheredlive.com or take Higher Ed Live with you on the go by subscribing to the podcast always makes for a great commute. Hybrid Live is produced by M. Stoner, a digital-first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. Planning, organizing, and maintaining college and university web content is challenging. Competing priorities, resource limitations, and siloed departments all have the potential to derail content projects. Whether you're preparing for a large-scale website redesign or building a capital campaign microsite, or just refreshing a few key pages, you wanna get the right content to the right audience on time and on budget. Shannon Lannis, who is content strategist at Instoner, will lead an upcoming webinar called Content Planning and Delivery for Higher Ed Websites on September 26, 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, hosted by Gather Content. She will share practical examples and techniques that you can use to avoid common pitfalls of content delivery for your next project. We'll tweet out a link to the details and registration info for that free webinar. So it's my pleasure to welcome today's guests, Pedro Ribeiro and Rob Moore. Pedro Ribeiro is Vice President Communications for AAU, Association of American Universities, where he has served since 2017. He has a wealth of communications and public affairs experience in federal government roles, including most recently for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And I had the pleasure of spending some time with Pedro here earlier this summer when he was on campus at Indiana University for the Big Ten Plus News and Marketing Conference. Pedro, great to see you again. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Welcome also to Rob Moore. Rob is Vice President, Marketing and Communications for CASE, the Council for Advancement and Support of Education. Rob is and has been a leading voice in our sector, advancing the understanding and effectiveness of marketing in higher education. He is CEO of Lippman Hearn and author of two books published by CASE, including something that should be on every higher ed marketer's bookshelf, The Real You, Building Brands That Resonate with Students, Faculty, Staff, and Donors. Rob, nice to see you as well. Good to see you, Rob. Thank you. Well, I only briefly touched on your background, so I want to explore those further. And looking back on, on your professional journeys, is there any particular thing or particular experience that has had a, a lasting impact on your career or your work, something that we might not get from your official bio? And Pedro, let's start with you. So I, the one thing you won't find on my official bio, which is actually surprising, is that I'm actually a product of the California Community College system. Hmm. So even though I work for AAU, uh, which you know it's, we are the Association of American Universities, somewhat of a misnomer, we represent the um, America's leading research universities. Um, so I, I, I have experience both at the very bottom <laughs> of the system and at the very top of the system, which I think is unique. Um, you know, I actually came up through the community college system and then transferred like many students do and transferred to a, to a private four-year institution. So I've, I've seen a lot of, of higher ed, even though I have not spent the, um, my career in higher ed. And so I, I, I have a great consumer's view of higher education. 
that's a great story. And, and Rob, as you reflect on your story, your path, is there something uh, specific that has shaped your career, your professional outlook? Um, I, I, well, like Pedro, I'm a California kid. Uh, I did go through the uh, University of California system. I, went, I was at University of California Santa Cruz in its early years. Uh, go banana slugs. Uh, uh, and, uh, banana slugs go very slowly. Uh, uh, the thing that's most pertinent uh, about my career is the fact that uh, all of my training uh, is as a writer. I, I came up to the university in various levels as a poet. Um, and was always running, for about a decade, I ran a freelance writing uh, uh, enterprise. And one morning I got a phone call uh, from somebody at the university where I was teaching uh, who said that they were running way behind uh, on developing case materials for a campaign. Could I write a case statement for them? And I said, of course. What's a case statement? Uh, because I had the arrogance of having spent years doing freelance writing saying, if you show me one, I can write one. And then... Uh, uh, Turns out that I had a knack for it, uh, and uh, and all the kind of associated things that happened after that came from that first phone call. Well, using your uh, your unique backgrounds and uh, all the experiences that you've had, really interested in digging into today's topic around public perception of higher education in the environment in which we all are. And we can point to various studies, of course, the ones from Gallup and Pew last year gained a lot of attention and headlines and wanted to get your perspective in terms of these studies and the evidence they provide of declining confidence in higher education. So first of all, how troubling were these to you and what were your takeaways from some of these studies? And again, Pedro, we can start with you. Sure, I mean, I think, um, I think there's, there's a lot of nuance of nuance in these, in these polls. And if you look across Gallup, Pew, New America, there's a lot of information out there that you have to look at um, in totality. And some of it is troubling. So we have, you know, especially the slip that we've seen um, in, in, in Americans who tend to have a more conservative worldview, I think is troubling. Um, that being said, uh, they still want to send their kids to the, to the same schools where they, where they see these issues. So we haven't seen a, a drop in enrollment. Um, so I do think you have to take it all uh, holistically, take a look at all the polling. I do think that there is a lot of work to be done in that area. And I do think that at times we spend a lot of time um, in, in an echo chamber talking to one another and, and preaching to the choir. And I do think that we need to make a, a bigger and more concentrated effort about reaching people who are kind of outside of our usual audiences in higher education. You know, it's one thing to talk to, you know, the Chronicle and, and Inside Higher Ed, and I think those are important publications, but we have to spend a lot of time talking to average Americans about what the importance of higher ed is, not only to them in the educational perspective, but if you look at from a university, from a research university perspective, all the wonderful deliverables that research universities deliver for more broadly, both in health, economy, I do think we need to do a much better job of telling those stories. Uh, especially in local communities that, that are directly impacted by those by those deliverables. I think that that can play, I think, a big role in stemming some of the sliding. I do think there's one other thing we need to look at, which is, yes, there's been a slide, and we need to take that seriously. But if you look at where higher ed is, we are still amongst the most respected sector of the, of the American population of the American economy. So I think we have to, it shouldn't, be, it shouldn't all be doom and gloom. 
Great. Well, I appreciate that perspective. And you highlighted several points, Pedro, that I want to get into further as our discussion unfolds. But also want to get Rob's take on this. As you digested some of these studies and, and data, how have you interpreted them and, and what have been your takeaways? Well, I, I think I, I agree with Pedro that, that we shouldn't get too carried away with, with the, the, uh, the data. The data is very troubling. Uh, I realize it's kind of a contradictory statement when saying that. Uh, I think one of the issues is that you look at folks with a conservative perspective, they see they're sort of uh, uh, endorsing the line about, you know, higher education being a, a liberal province, you know, or liberal faculty or whatever else. Um, and that's a really becomes part of the partisan debate. On the other side, the folks with a more, uh, more liberal uh, or more progressive political viewpoint uh, look at things like, like uh, cost of college and student debt. And are, are saying, well, college is headed in the wrong direction because of that. So, so I think one when you start to when you amalgamate those together, and you get a slight majority of people who believe that higher education is headed in the wrong direction, the problem is they're saying it for almost exactly opposite reasons. Uh, uh, and then that sort of ties into the fact that uh, not to blame the media on this, but but you know, media has has been for quite a long time in a sort of a gotcha framework. Uh, about about the education space. For example, they will look for uh, going going back to when when the whole student debt quote unquote bubble uh, start hit the news. They were equating it to the mortgage bubble, um, which is a completely inaccurate comparison. If I buy a house for five hundred thousand dollars, put two hundred thousand dollars into it, thinking I can flip it and make a million dollars, and the market collapses and the house is only worth two hundred thousand dollars, I'm not getting anything back for that. Whereas the investment in a college degree, still by all the data, you know, shows that uh, uh, you know that having a college degree is going to have a long-term benefit for you financially, uh, in terms of civic involvement, in terms of health issues. All of those things uh, are still there, so it's not an empty bubble. But that, that's kind of the way the dialogue started uh, when people started to pay attention to the to the I'm going to call it the grossing up uh, of student debt, uh, and it's simply not an accurate. Comparable. It's hard to get media to kind of dig in and say what's really going on here. You know, it doesn't make headlines. And if I could add just like an anecdote to this, you know, about the media, and you hear a lot about this, you know, um, these institutions are liberal indoctrination centers. Last time I checked, every single Supreme Court justice, including the most conservatives, were all graduates of these liberal liberal schools. So obviously, we do a really poor job of indoctrinating people on liberalism. Yeah. Well, and in, and in fact, you know, the, while there are some differences in terms of the voting habits uh, of people with college degrees and without college degrees, it's not like an 80-20 split. You know, it's like a, a, a 52-48 split or a 50. I, I don't have that data right in front of me, mm-hmm. but, but uh, it is, you know, like, like, uh, um, like Pedro said, <laughs> If they are liberal indoctrination plants, they're doing a really poor job of it. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. But again, it's an, it's an easy storyline. You know, again, yeah. the whole gotcha, the whole partisan uh, kind of the, the, the echo chambers that we operate in now. Uh, once you get a, a, a topic going, it's easier to snowball that topic along than to really dig into what's really going on underneath underneath the story. Well, with our audience here of higher ed marketing and communications pros, I, I want to get into the issue that, that Pedro first referenced about telling our story. And 
and outside of our, our typical group of stakeholders and outside of our echo chamber. And it's a great point and one that that our foundation president here at Indiana University has, has said and something that stuck with me about how in higher ed we're great at talking to ourselves about ourselves and the, the telling our story better is, is in some cases it's an easy target, a common solution that's often offered. So wanted to get your take on this issue in terms of how much are some of the public perception issues really a, a storytelling issue and how much of it points to some more core fundamental issues around things like student debt outcomes and so on. Um, I mean, I'm happy to, to address that. I mean, I think, so, so first of all, there are no silver bullets used because we tell better stories by continuing. So the slide has been happening for years. It's not something we're going to change in a week or two weeks or a year. It's something that we have, we have to work at. And there, I think there are real issues behind it. I, I honestly think there is an affordability issue that we have to address. Though I do think for AAU schools in, partic in particular, the affordability issue tends to be um, overblown and conflated with, with, other, with other sectors of higher ed. Um, AAU institutions tend to be the most affordable in the country, even even some of our private members. You know, if, if, if for example, if, if you're someone in the middle class and you get into Yale and Princeton, for example, you're probably going to get a full ride. Um, and if you and, and if you look at some of our state flagships, a lot of times uh, you're going to get just as much financial aid uh, from from them as you would from from some of the other um, institutions. So. I think I think we have to do a better job of, about telling that particular story about there really is affordability. Um, but I do think we need to do that. But I do think that over the years, um, American higher ed has been really good about building global brands, um, and I do think that that has come at the detriment of building and maintaining our local brand. Which is to say, you know, we have these elite flagship institutions, and I'm just kind of referencing the state schools now. But I think many residents of the state don't see how that institution helps them. And I think we need to double our efforts and redouble our efforts about how we tell that story about the importance of these institutions, not just on the education, we think the education is immensely important, um, but also on the other things that these universities provide. You know, Indiana, for example, talks a lot about you know, the work that they do in the opioid crisis um, in their state. And I do think that those are really important things that we have to think about. And it's, you know, it, it, are we making the effort to talk to the residents uh, of the regions and states and localities where our, where our schools are and how much of a, of a positive impact we have on the region and the state and in particular their lives. Even if their kids may never come here, even if they never went here, um, there are still wonderful impacts for people. And that was a point, Pedro, when you were here at IU over the summer, I think it, it really resonated with, with attendees in terms of better telling our story at the state and local level and staying connected to the roots you know, of our, our original um, mission of serving the communities that we were originally meant to serve. So, you know, beyond, um, you know, you mentioned the, the example that, that we've been working on here at IU, uh, other ways that you might recommend to, to marketing and communications folks on, on how to do a better job of that. And, and I know something we talked about when you were here over the summer is, you know, our fascination with trying to get those placements in the New York Times and, and other things. And at, at times that we may overlook the value of, of our local or regional papers, for example. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I you know, from my perspective, if, if you were to come to me and say, you know, my president wants to get something in the New York Times, I would actually say, why don't you think of something local at home? Because I think that's the, the reality is the New York Times is, you know, and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal are great and they can help influence, but I'd rather have folks back home read these important stories about the great work that they're doing. 
and you know kind of leave leave that national stuff to the associations and the other groups that work on it because the reality is is you have to prove your value to the taxpayers um, and even and, and and so that's true for the public but i also think it's just as important for the private if you look at um a recent um uh, campaign that cornell has launched and they're really focused on the, the impact that cornell has on the, on the new york economy especially in upstate new york where a lot of small businesses are dependent on a lot of the things that the university does um, whether it's in agriculture, they do quite a bit of agricultural research, working with farmers to develop new crops and new products, increase yields, or machining, which is something people don't think about. But you know, they, they do a lot of, of work um, on on manufacturing that also helps the local economy. And that's a story that's gone untold. And, and they're telling that story now too, because they they want the, the residents of the New York to realize that institution, though it is a private, um, but it is I mean, it's, it's it's different. It's a private and it's a land grant. But they want folks to realize that. It is a benefit to the people of New York, specifically New York, that that university is there, and that it is an anchor for the local economy. But not just because it employs people there; it is an anchor because it educates the next generation of farmers. It also helps them with their research. So there, there's a lot of spin-off benefits to all that. We have to tell all those stories, and we have to tell them at home. I want to add on to that. There's there's a a piece. Uh, it's not just the big research universities that have that kind of impact. And I fully agree that, that, that institutions need to tell their story better. There was a piece that, uh, that came out in Bloomberg Opinion uh, last fall. And the headline was, Small Colleges Can Save Towns in Middle America. Uh, and it's a, it's a discussion about, about a, uh, uh, hold on, I'm looking for it here, uh, about um, uh, the University of Pikeville in Pikeville, West Virginia, uh, uh, and how, or, sorry, Pikeville, Kentucky, on the West Virginia border, and about how that university, which is a very small institution, it's like 25, 2700 students, how that is making a, essentially sustaining that community. Uh, and I have lived in, you know, I, I spent years teaching at the University of Idaho, living in and around Moscow, Idaho. Moscow, Idaho would not be what it is uh, without, without the university. So it's, it, it really is the dimension of, of, of impact. But I think to a certain extent we brought that on ourselves. Uh, for many, many years, and I, I, will be, uh, I will confess to being a party to this, the argument for higher education had to do with personal benefit. It had to do with the fact that over your lifetime of earnings, you're going to make somewhere between 800000 and a million dollars more than somebody with just a high school diploma. You know, that you're going to live 10 years longer because you're less likely to smoke and you're less likely to be obese. That you're going to be a citizen and you're going to vote and do blah, blah, you know. All of that was about personal benefit. And that's been the argument uh, for, for some time. And that I think has created two related and difficult problems or perceptions we have to overcome. One is, in what ways is higher education a public good as opposed to a personal benefit? Uh, and the other is the whole question about utilitarian versus more broadly based education. Is the job of the university to graduate somebody and get that good first job? Or is it to create educated citizens who can, who can carry forward through a series of careers, opportunities, civic engagements, and, be, uh, and be, be good for their community, be good for the nation? And we've allowed ourselves to get into the storytelling, which is about personal benefit, and about um, about utilitarian degrees, and that uh, we we've kind of helped create the uh, we know it. 
And that's a great point. And I think in previous discussions that we've had, Rob, you and I related to case on this, and you've been very sensitive to that point because that is one of the first answers or quick answers when the question of value of higher ed or impact of higher ed, people are quick to rattle off those lifetime earnings. And more money. Yeah. 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 The, and there's so, so many data points, as you said, on related to quality of life, income, health, uh, civic engagement, and so on. But to your point, that may not be particularly compelling to someone who hasn't been to college, doesn't plan to go to college. And so, you know, any other recommendations on how to better reach and influence citizens, whether they're in the state of Indiana, Idaho, Kentucky, wherever, who may not go to the local college or be engaged in the university there, but are still they still benefit from that and trying to make that connection when they may not see themselves directly as part of the higher education experience. Right. I, I, I do think that, that that's I mean, my, my take on it is there's at least four dimensions we have to be smarter about, uh, about talking about the broad impact uh, of, of higher education. One is economic benefit, uh, one is social benefit, uh, one is cultural and now I'm going to do a, uh, a Rick Perry. I forget the fourth, uh, <laughs> but uh, um, you know the uh, it'll come back to me. Um, uh, but we really have to be be looking at that. Uh, as somebody said, we did this event last March, uh, and one of our panelists said, you know, when you when you get rolled into the hospital and you've had a heart attack, you want to make sure that that physician or that surgeon or that nurse or whomever is treating you, you want to make sure that they've been trained, that they're educated, that they actually know what they're doing because they're going to save your life. And that and that is a direct benefit uh, of their their skills and their talent, but also their education. Um, and I think that we tend to kind of isolate those moments rather than stepping back, as Pedro said, thinking about what's the what's the overall impact on our community, what's the overall impact uh, on our society, on, on questions of, of social mobility, uh, um, questions of, uh, um, you know, kind of cultural integration, um, which I know for some people is not to be desired. I, I see that as being a positive person. Uh, but what, you know, how do we start to tell that story more broadly so it's not just about the individual who is, who is getting a boost because she or he chose to go to college and had an opportunity and got a scholarship or whatever, but is about um, uh, about the impact of all those individuals collectively. And Pedro, could you share a bit about the work that you and AAU do around this issue and, and how you're helping institutions and love would love to hear any additional examples beyond IU. You also mentioned Cornell. Uh, colleges, universities who you see as being proactive in this regard and are effectively demonstrating their impact to the, the broader community? So I, I'll, I'll, I'll try to answer that question first. I think for, for most part, every single day institution is doing something along those lines. Uh, and, and I applaud them all for doing it. I think it's one of those things that um, has to become of nature to all our communicators and all our schools and all our colleges and our professional schools that, that has to be really uh, amongst the central tenets of the work they do, like just to talk about benefits more broadly, as Robert talked about, not just in the we're going to get you a job and you're going to make some more money if, if you come to us, but talk more broadly about the impact that the school has on society. And I do think that even though each individual school is doing some of it, I think there's a lot more that every single institution could do, um, both public and private. And I do think that it, it, that is something that a lot of um, private AAU members are now looking at. But they also realize that they need to tell that story too. They need to talk about um, the importance um, that their institutions bring to the reach, 
for their states, for their communities, uh, enter the country more broadly. Um, you know, to to, uh, to your to your other point, I mean, it's it's one of those things where we have to look at the the totality of everything that we do. It's almost you almost have to take a step back as a communicator and look at all your products. And, you know, um, it, it can be difficult at times when you are, you know, a vice president of an institution and or, or an associate vice president. And, you know, you, you, you can kind of control some of the top, le- top level messaging, but you have to step back and take a look at all the portals through which someone can get to your institution, whether it's the School of Public Health or um, university medicine or any of those things and really take a, a good, hard look uh, and, and do an and audit of every public touching face that you have. And that's hard. And that takes a lot of time. That takes a lot of effort. It's not an easy thing to do. But I do think it's something that absolutely needs to be done across all our institutions. In terms of the brand and Pedro made the point about our focus on the, the our brands as global institutions, but not forgetting about the the local impact. I also want to ask you, Rob, a, a brand strategy question because as marketers, we're we're so focused now on differentiating our individual institutions and showing how we are different from or better than our competitors in ways that our target audiences value. So it, the focus is always on differentiation. So. You know, for example, I'll be the first to tell you about all the ways that Indiana University transforms lives and society, but we need to tell that collective story better. It's clear that, that we, did, we need to do that. So how do we achieve those goals in terms of differentiation, but also step back and, and more effectively tell the broader higher ed story? And, and how do we take more ownership of that? Right. Um, that's a really good question because, you know, honestly, Rob, the... Uh, your job is to make IU successful. <laughs> you know, uh, it's not necessarily to make it successful. Obviously, people feel uh, there's a matter of getting them off the couch, but there's a matter of once they're off the couch, where are they going? And I think the differentiation question goes to once they're off the couch, they're maybe going to enroll or whatever. That's that, that's where the a lot of the marketing and branding work uh, for higher ed institutions goes on. I, I do think that, that there are some assets that, that we are – uh, but we haven't necessarily rallied. Um, there are, uh, and by the way, the fourth, uh, the fourth agenda item I couldn't remember was scientific progress. Of course, scientific, economic, cultural uh, 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 progress. Um, the I had to go look it up. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, uh, the I think honestly the role of the institutions that speak for the the sector. And that would be AAU and AGB and ACB and ACE and ASCU and NIDU and all those folks. We have to do a better job of, of providing messaging and materials to our members uh, so that they can start to tell a story. For example, CASE, one of our one of the group of people that with whom we work are folks in the alumni relations area. You know, and alumni relations is an area where I think we haven't necessarily uh, galvanized the people that we've educated to stand up and speak up for the sector as a whole. They might speak up for their particular university if it's in a crisis situation. They might uh, they might rally, you know, if if the uh, uh, 
drastically cuts uh, the revenue allocation so that there has to be a raise in tuition, those sorts of things. But those are kind of uh, not really a sustained uh, narrative. And that's something that we at CASE are starting to look at. We're trying to see how can we provide the kind of message points, the kinds of, fr the kinds of framework uh, for the story that our individual institutions can then take and apply their own, their own data to and talk to the alumni and try to get their alumni to, to kind of rally toward, towards the, the sector. The complicating factor of that is, frankly, that, that their alumni are as likely to be conservative as they are to be progressive. So we can't take a progressive political agenda. It has to be an agenda uh, which, is, which is one that there is a commonality of interest in. Uh, it goes back to the scientific, economic, cultural uh, progress. And Rob, you mentioned some of the work that, that CASE is doing and what, what you're looking at. And CASE hosted a great event last spring at American University, a panel discussion titled Claiming Our Story, the Imperative for Higher Education. And would love to hear more and what may happen, uh, piggybacking on that and any particular takeaways that you had from, from that discussions uh, of higher ed leaders and those who have different roles within the sector. Um, I think it was a great discussion. Uh, uh, we had representation there uh, from uh, uh, from some of our colleagues in, in England. We had representation from ACE. I think probably the most interesting, and I you know I might, might get slapped around saying this, but most interesting panelist to me was a woman named Danielle, whose last name I'm now forgetting, uh, uh, who was from the Washington Post, and she's a reporter who's been who's been been talking, uh, telling the, the the reporting on issues of student debt, uh, and 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 that that part of the story, and her the perspective that she brought was was terrific. And going back to what Pedro said earlier about we we need to work on local papers as well, but we also need to kind of get out of our echo chamber and be talking to people who are talking about us, whether they're talking about us in paper, talking about us in, in social media or whatever, we need to be willing to really engage the conversation in a way that's not just sort of, you know, self-satisfied. Well, we know we're important, so we'll, we'll just let it go with that. You know, it, we're, we're losing that battle by, um, by, a, by a lack of willingness to really engage and really understand why people might be suspicious or why they might be skeptical um, of, of us. And frankly, sometimes the stories that come out there were the stories about academic freedom or stories about, I would, I would call faculty overreach, you know, uh, uh, that, that get picked up and they become uh, emblematic, you know, of, of storyline, you know. It's like, oh, of course, this proves how, how liberal how ineffective faculty are it's like look the vast majority of faculty are good smart hard-working dedicated people you know but that's a dog bites man story you know it's like yeah they're doing their job that's what they're supposed to do you know yeah. but the flip side where somebody does something outrageous it's like oh that gets all the news and that becomes the the, the lens through which the story is viewed yeah, i mean i think there's also something to be said about the association perspective, I do think that um, associations working together better, and that's whether that's AAU and, and APLU and the Cuba these groups working together. I think you're starting to see a lot of that. Where a lot of people, like my colleagues at APLU, uh, 
terms of public and land grants of who I have the utmost respect for a wonderful group of folks who work there. It's a lot of time talking to them about how we can talk about our, with the work that kind of the broader cross section of advocates um, do. Um, I also think that we have to, um, you know, there, there's some, some of this polling police I think is what I call the Fox News effect, which is, you know, you see Dr. Carlson talking about free speech on campus every night. It's going to have a little bit of a, a thing. I do think we need to um, be more forceful at times in the way we respond. Sometimes we take too long and we do not have a rapid response mechanism to get our message out. I think it has a role that the association can play and speak forcefully more broad, broadly for the for the entire school to say, actually, broad report, no. Our faculty are not indoctrinating anybody. If you look at it, we graduate just as many conservatives as we do liberals. And you know, if you look at the Supreme Court, my earlier example, you know, even the, the newest you know, nominee is a is a double Ivy graduate. You know, it's obvious that we're not they're, they're not indoctrination centers. So we have to be, I think, a little bit more forceful and a little bit more rapid in the response. And I think that that's a big place for some of the associations and kind of non-campus players in higher ed can play a big role in defending the sector more broadly and being more forceful. I think the same thing can be said about affordability. There's a lot of mistruth, myth, misconception about affordability. Some of it we've brought upon ourselves by using words like super price and things that sound like we're selling used cars. Um, I think we, 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 but that is another place where I think that there is a, there is a role for associations to say, well, actually, if you look at AAU institutions, I'm just using my own example because I know the numbers. 50% of graduating seniors in AAU institutions graduate with zero debt. Right. Most of those people's minds. Well, and, and that's true across a lot of other sectors. You know, that that the the outliers, the people who are walking out with $100,000, worth of debt, and honestly, there was a story that came out a couple of years ago, maybe it's longer than that. It was the New York Times, about a young woman who had $200,000 student debt. Um, and, it, and her mother was going to lose their condo because they had mortgage, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you look at the story, and the story was this, this individual had started at Sarah Lawrence and completed at NYU and took six years to graduate. And he graduated with a double major in what I would call extremely impractical majors. And in there was someone who goes, shouldn't somebody say this person made some bad choices? You know, in other words, are, are we, you know, maybe maybe for the, the, uh, the folks in the counseling offices of those institutions, they should have been saying to her, have breaks on this debt you're accumulating, you know, because that's going to be a hard thing to pay. But, you know, don't we have a responsibility at some point to also be extolling the people who a modest amount of debt or no debt that they've committed themselves. They've earned their way to a degree which they believe suits their personal interests, their family interests, their neighborhood interests, their community interests. And that becomes a story. There's a, I think, Rob, I think you know um, Andy Gooden, uh, the guy, uh, the, the storytelling guru. Andy sure. has a great phrase, which is numbers numb, jargon jars, and nobody ever marched on Washington because of a pie chart. Uh, and his and his answer then is telling stories. And a lot of times, I think what we've done is we've done the numbers numb, jargon jars, you know, font uh, stories. And we need to be able to really illuminate the positive. They hugely outweigh the uh, the, the 
relative handful of stories of people who've got who've really been buried by uh, by debt, and also be honest with some of those stories of buried by debt had to do with a predatory for-profit uh, sector. You know, that was essentially seeing uh, Pell grants and seeing GI Bill dollars as uh, you know available resources to them, and they didn't really care about about uh, graduating and providing value. I mean, it, you know, it's all been inflated into one story, and we have to be able to take take that story apart uh, about the positive impact. And I asked Pedro, and he shared a, a couple of examples, and want to get your thoughts on that as well, Rob. If you've seen particular universities do uh, an exceptional job in this regard, in the in the storytelling aspect, and in, in highlighting the impact that that they have, not only to individuals but society, the communities they they serve, and so on. Um, well, I, I'll, I'll speak from some level of what I'll call personal experience. I, I, I myself am a graduate of three different institutions. Uh, my kids are in two other institutions, and the, the, this, it, I found that the actually, oddly enough, the smaller schools are able to pull those stories out and illustrate them in a way through their, their web presence, through their, uh, their, their alumni, parent magazine, and stuff like that. Uh, I think for a bigger institution, it's harder because, you know, you're you know, 25,000 students, you've got, you know, 11 different colleges, you've got, you know, nine graduate programs, a medical school, a, a, a business school. What stories are we telling? You know, how do we tell a story about the enterprise as a whole? Because the enterprise is so complex, you know, um, and it's so easily uh, upset by, you know, losing a football game, you know, or or somebody gets charged with X, Y, or Z, you know, and, and suddenly that's, everybody rushes to, to answer that story. Uh, and, and I think that's, it's very difficult for the, for the big universities uh, to hold down and find that story uh, or those sets of stories that really are about their, uh, their enduring contribution, which, and their contributions are huge. Pedro, I wanted to circle back to the, the topic of the, the political divide, because another point that you made when you were here for the Big Ten Plus Conference at Indiana University that I think hit home uh, and maybe was a bit of a wake-up call for marketing and communications pros, especially coming from you with the, the breadth and depth of your government experience, was with this political divide and a growing divide around the issue of higher education, how issues that have and the, that you've seen that have created a divide, you've never seen an example of them kind of coming back to the center. And so I think that was, a, as I said, a bit of a wake-up call and, and wanted you to, to elaborate on that and, and your perspective with, with that, that angle of this issue. So that's actually something that I stole from Brandon Muskie, who I think most people in higher ed know. He's the executive director um, for education and workforce polling and, and the work that they do there. That's actually something that the BROC a year and a half ago, and you know, where when he did kind of a historical work on some of the issues that come to be these polarizing political issues, once an issue crosses into being something like that, it is almost impossible to pull it back. Mm -hmm. So once an issue becomes polarized between left and right, that's it. You know, you you've crossed kind of a Rubicon. There's no going back. You you know, you're headed to Rome, and that's it. Um, and uh, you know, it, it is deeply troubling, and I think that is something that we have to 
and a lot of time working on to make sure that we never get to that point where higher end uh, and the value of higher end becomes a polarized political issue where the right is in one place and the left is in the other place. Um, and, and, you know, I think luckily we have, I think, a while to go before we ever get there, but I do think it is something that we need to be very cognizant of and work for to make sure that we never get to that point. Um, and in, in the last conversation I had with, with Brandon, he actually spoke to the presidents of the AAU institutions and he gave them a similar warning. You know, it's one of these things where it took years for us to get here. It will take years for us to stop the slide and it will take years for us to build back up. So this is not something that you're going to go dictate to your marketing and communications department and they're going to come up with a brilliant idea and they're going to fire it off and it's going to solve the problem. This is going to take years of concentrated work and effort and toil to get right and bring back. There's, there's, there's a great, uh, David Ogilvie, the founder of Ogilvy and Mather, uh, was in certain ways uh, one of my heroes. Uh, and he, he said about advertising, uh, and same thing we said about marketing or communication. He said there are three important things about advertising: repetition, repetition, and repetition. You know that we need to develop a narrative and just be persistent in reinforcing, speaking, repeating. Uh, I absolutely agree, Pedro. It, it's coming back where we are now. It's going to be difficult, especially because we're in a political climate of blaming the other. Uh, all of our troubles is sort of uh, the group model. Um, um, I am naively hoping at some point we will we'll be back into a political structure that, uh, and going back to someone like John McCain, uh, might minimize. You know, he might disagree with him, but he would he would listen to you and he would work with you. you know? um, or not, but but I I think we're trying to do what we're trying in a context of a very loud culture blame uh, and that's you know we're we're a pipsqueak in that argument well Pedro Rob as we wrap up and we have those in in leadership roles in marketing and communications who will who will log off and and get back to it as they get their semesters going and back to the day-to-day -day. any final thoughts or, or words of encouragement to uh, to rally everyone facing some of these challenges, but also knowing that there's a, a lot of opportunity and at the end of the day, we're, we're doing truly important, impactful work that's making a difference for individuals, for communities, for society, the nation and beyond. Well, I think that's point is, is, is repetition, 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 keep at it. Keep telling the stories, tell those stories that are gonna resonate um, with the communities that you're in. That's all I can ever keep asking of all our institutions. You need to do that. Keep telling those stories about that, that first generation student, you know, that rural student who was the first family to go to the state like this. We have to continue to tell all these stories. For the, the first generation student who's now in an Ivy League school, you know, we have to continue to tell these stories over and over again and dispel a lot of the myths that are out there that are really adding to some of the problems. I, I, I agree with that. I would add to it. Uh, actually, a week ago today, uh, I dropped my son off. He's a first-year student, a freshman uh, at a college outside of Philadelphia, or Sinus College. Shout out to the Bears. Uh, uh, and and uh, I think if you are on a campus and you're getting discouraged, go walk through a dorm of first-year students. 
you know, go sit in on a class. I used to teach uh, a lot of first year students. I love the fact that they came in, they were excited as all hell. They've been told in their lives that college was going to be different. They are, they're ready for that. I mean, they, they are starting a wonderful and a marvelous journey. And if, if you're getting discouraged, you walk around and you talk to them and you take them, you get a little bit of a hit off of who they are and where they're going. Maybe by the time they're seniors, they're, they're wildly, even second semester freshmen, cynical because they have to be and stuff like that. But, but that energy, the value that we actually provide, the lives that we actually change, whether they come from families or their first gen or their DACA students or whatever, we make a difference. And then obviously on the output end too, what they do when they go out into the world, on the output of our research, the kinds of things that are possible. That's all part of the story we're telling, and I and I think that's a way to refresh your soul, uh, getting down on things. Well said, absolutely. And this is such an important topic, and you've given us a, a ton of great in, insights. So thanks again to, to both of you, Pedro and Rob, for sharing your perspective and experiences and and all the thoughtful um, reflections and recommendations today. So thanks again. Thank you. If, Thank if you. I could add on briefly, Pedro, are you are you DC based? I am DC based. Sometime we should get together. Rob, can you get us some contact info? Because we, 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 we have lots of crossover. Happy to make that connection. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Thank you to Pedro Ribeiro and to Rob Moore. Thanks also to M. Stoner, who always makes Higher Ed Live possible. I'm Rob Zinkin. Thanks again for tuning in to Higher Ed Live, and we will see you next month.